So we're in Matthew 19 this morning, Matthew 19, verse 27. And I grew up in a small country church. If you did, you're about to, you'll know what I'm about to talk about. Uh, In the summertime in our church, every year, at least once, we would have an ice cream social. And now an ice cream social meant that uh, we would gather. In our case, it was, there were these big oak trees or pecan trees actually out beside our, our church building. And there was this long white picnic table with some light bulbs up above it. We gather in the cool of a summer evening and people would bring their best homemade ice cream. And we just walk around with a, with a bowl and a spoon and just eat some of everybody's because you didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings, right? And you just eat to your heart's content. And that was it. I mean, there was no program. There was, you know, the preacher didn't get up and preach. That was it. It was the best thing we did all year. <laughs> I mean, it was great. And we, didn't, we never had a contest. There was never anybody declared the, the ice cream social winner. That would have split the church. I promise you. But I also know, because I know this happened in my own family, every family on their way home, they were talking about, well, I like this ice cream better. Well, I like that peach ice cream. That was really good. Well, I don't know. I don't like all that fruit in there. I just, it's homemade vanilla or nothing else. And then somebody else would say, well, I want chocolate. Next year, somebody needs to make a pint of chocolate. And uh, back and forth, we'd go. And because, because we knew that, because everyone knew there was an unofficial champion every year, I'm sure that's why my grandma did what she did this one year. And this was before I was ever born. So I didn't personally experience this. I just heard about it from her when I was growing up. But because grandpa was a dairy farmer, one year she decided to make a batch of vanilla ice cream out of pure cream. And some of you are like, okay, so what? If you never made ice cream before, you make ice cream out of milk, okay? There's a little cream in it, but it's mostly milk. But, if, but she made it out of just the good stuff, just the stuff you skim off the top. And she told everybody before they ate it because she wanted them to know this is really rich. Just take a couple of spoonfuls. That's all you're gonna need. But there were these two little boys who kept coming back for more. And every time she'd say, listen, you shouldn't eat any more of this. You're gonna get sick. And they'd say, no, 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 we feel good. We feel fine. This is good stuff. We want more. And they just kept eating and kept eating. And by the third or fourth helping, as my grandma said, they were looking a little green in the gills. And according to their mothers, both of them had a very unpleasant night that night. And it reminds me of us because we keep coming back to God and telling him what we need. We think we know what the good life looks like. We think we know what we need in order to be happy. And if I gave everybody here truth serum and ask you the question, what do you want out of life? Your, your answers would fall into one of four categories. It, it, would be, it would be wealth, power, comfort, or affirmation, or some combination of the above. Now, this is the service in our church in which uh, most of our teenagers worship. Most of our young adults are here. Uh, in your youth, when you're dreaming of the life to come, when you're dreaming of, okay, this is what I hope to be. This is the life I'm trying to build for myself. It's gonna involve wealth where you've got enough money that you can do what you wanna do and go where you wanna go and and experience everything you wanna experience. And most of us have never had that before, but we dream of it. We want power. It's it's just more fun to be able to give the orders than to take the orders. It's more fun to be able to call your own shots and order your environment the way you want it than it is to be at somebody else's uh, uh, prerogative. And as far as comfort, uh, you know, 
Life is not fun when you're in pain or when you're in stress. So, so you think, if I can just rid myself of those things, if I can just have a pain-free, anxiety-free existence, then I'll be happy. And then affirmation. We've all got those people that we need for them to approve of us, to love us, to to think we're doing a good job in order for us to feel good about ourselves. And maybe that's your family. Maybe that's your friend group. Maybe that's the cool kids at school or your peers at work. Or maybe it's the people of your ethnicity, your ethnicity or your political group. But one way or another, we need to feel that affirmation. We need to feel like, okay, they like me. They think I've done well. And for some of us, it goes even beyond that. We want that general sense of applause that, okay, lots of people know who I am and they think I'm awesome. And you're, depending on your personality, you're gonna order those four things in, in a different order than somebody else. But all of us, what we crave in life is wealth, power, comfort, and affirmation. And I don't know anybody who says, you know, Lord, I've got too much comfort in my life. Can you send some pain my way? I've got too many friends who think I'm amazing. Can you, can you bring some people into my life who hate me? That's what I really need. All of us think we need more and we keep going back for more and back for more. But in Matthew 19, 27, we see Peter ask the Lord a question that sort of betrays this idea. He says, then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Now, let me explain what's going on in this passage. Peter and the other 11 disciples have just witnessed something that they really can't wrap their minds around. A rich young ruler has approached Jesus. People were always coming up to Jesus. Usually people who were sick or they had a sick child. This was a rich young ruler. So as a ruler, he had power. As a rich man, he had wealth, obviously. He could afford anything he needed to be comfortable. And because he was also religiously devout and highly moral, he embodied everything that 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 culture thought was great. And so he had the affirmation of everyone he knew. He had the good life. And I'm sure when the disciples saw him talking to Jesus, they thought, oh, wow. If this guy joins the team, we're gonna have a lot. We're gonna have a lot of stuff because the disciples were people who had never had any of those things. And there was only one of them we know of who had been wealthy and that was Matthew and he'd had to give up his wealth to follow Christ. So this rich young ruler comes to Jesus. He's living the good life, but he knows something's missing. He says, okay, Lord, tell me what I need to do to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, only one thing you lack, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then you'll have, then follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. Now, Mark tells us that Jesus wasn't trying to be difficult. He wasn't trying to push this guy away. Quite the opposite. Mark tells us he looked upon him and loved him. Jesus said this out of love. He said, what you're lacking, what is, what is stopping you from experiencing abundant life and salvation is your wealth has become your main thing. You gotta get rid of it. And the young man went away sad. And Jesus was sad too. He said, man, how hard it is for people with money. Man, it's easier to, to stuff a camel through the eye of a needle than to get a rich man into the kingdom of heaven. And this blew the disciples' minds because like everybody else in their culture, they thought that if you've got wealth, it's because God loves you more. And therefore, if this guy can't be saved, who can be saved? And that's what they said to Jesus. And Jesus said, well, that's just the point. Nobody can be saved unless there's a miracle of God. It, it, takes, it takes the power of God, but with what, what is impossible with man is, is possible with him. And that's when Peter says, okay, Lord, I got a question because we've done what this guy refused to do. We've given up everything. 
We walked away from our families. We walked away from our, our, our responsibilities at home, our jobs, our, what little wealth we had, uh, everything we knew. We gave it up to follow you. Now, when's it gonna start to pay off? And that seems like a cynical question. And you expect Jesus to be angry with them. But notice in the answer that he gives, he doesn't, he doesn't sound even a little bit angry. Notice also that what he says, just like Nathan said a moment ago, the key to the good life now, the key to the good life now is not more ice cream. The key to the good life now is to live for what comes next. Listen to what he says. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. When Jesus says in the new world or some Bibles say in in the renewal of all things, he's using terminology that we don't use most of the time in Christian churches today, but it's a consistent theme in the scriptures. See, we have this anemic vision of what heaven is like. We've been influenced more by popular entertainment, by movies and TV shows than we have by the scripture itself. You know, when I was a kid, the only time you saw cartoons was Saturday mornings. So I looked forward to Saturday mornings and my favorite cartoon was Bugs Bunny. Bugs Bunny, the Roadrunner, Sylvester and Tweety, right? So Sylvester's chasing Tweety Bird. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody? Okay. So Sylvester's chasing Tweety Bird, runs out into a road, bus runs over him, and you see this little ghostly kitty cat fly up to the sky, right? With little angel wings and a harp and a halo. And you're like, oh, okay, that's what it, that's what it is to go to heaven. Or, or you're watching like one of those movies like uh, Heaven Can Wait. Remember Heaven Can Wait? This is the, the remake in the 70s. Remember when Warren Beatty was still good looking? And he's, he's, he has this bicycle accident and he he's suddenly finds himself, he's strolling these streets with mist rising everywhere and there's this angel with him and he's, he's bullying the angel into sending him back to earth because this isn't where I want to be. And so the, the message we get is that heaven is, you know, it's a nice consolation prize. If you got to die, it's nice to know there's something afterwards that's better than the alternative but it's nothing we look forward to. It's nothing we're excited about. And yet the, the vision of heaven in scripture is totally different. The vision of heaven in scripture is a new earth, a redeemed planet earth, resurrected human bodies, not angel wings, not harps, not clouds, not halos, but living the life we want to live now in a place that's redeemed. So let me just give you a few scriptures so you can see what I'm talking about. Isaiah 65 verse 17 says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. And in verse 22 of that same chapter, it says, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I shall make, that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. 
2 Peter 3.10, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then Revelation 21, y'all, if you don't, if, I, I know we don't emphasize scripture memory like we used to, but if you don't have Revelation 21, one through five memorized, you need to get on that, okay? Here's what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. There are dozens of other references in Scripture to the life that comes after this that don't use the term the new earth, but it's obvious that's what they're talking about. Again, no harps, no halos, no clouds, no angel wings, but instead an earthly existence that's the way you wish that earth would be like now. And I'll give you an example. When Jesus is talking about his second coming several different times in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, in several of his parables, he refers to it in terms of a wedding feast. I did a wedding yesterday did a wedding for a family from a church in Houston that I pastored before this one and, and really special family to me. I enjoyed it, but it was downtown Houston out on a balcony overlooking all those buildings and it was beautiful and the family was so gracious and, and sweet and it was good to see them and, and the food was so good and, and it was really enjoyable. But as the father of a 24-year-old daughter, all I could think was, good grief, how much does this cost? And it just reminded me of, you know, we've kind of ruined weddings in our culture. We, we've got this weddings arm, arms race that kind of ruins it for everybody. The dad's just sitting there like, okay, you know, there goes everything. And, and the bride is just insane because if my wedding's not more special than, you know, Tiffany's wedding was, then, you know, I'm a total failure. And the, the groom's just like, well, I showed up. What else is there? And, and it, it's just, and the mom, you know, is trying to keep the daughter. It's just such a stressful time. And in the ancient world, weddings were totally different. Weddings were simple, but they were incredible. That's where you ate the best food. You drank the best wine. You danced and you sang and you laughed and you didn't have to work. I mean, as a peasant, it's the one time you really let down your hair and enjoy yourself. The one time all year. And so isn't it interesting and isn't it a relief that that's what Jesus chooses to compare the new earth to? He doesn't say it's going to be like the coronation of a new king, which in many ways it will be. He doesn't say it's going to be like the beginning of a new Sabbath day, which in many ways it will be. As beautiful as those two images are, he chose, of all things, he chose the most exciting and fun thing that all of those people could think of and said, yeah, that's what it's going to be like. You know how when the wedding feast is over, you're like, oh man, now I got to go back to work. Well, no, no, it'll be all that. Celebration, joy perfection, fellowship. That's what we have to look forward to. It'll be a place of wealth, a place of wealth. See, in Jesus's time, wealth was not found in bank accounts. It was found in land. 
And the, the problem with that is it was really hard to change your social status because no matter how hard you worked, you couldn't buy somebody's land because they were really hesitant to sell it because land passed down from family to family, from dad to son. And so for most of the, uh, of the people of Jesus's time, Jesus included, they just didn't have any wealth and they had no access to wealth. If you were the average Israelite, you were saying, okay, my dad died and all, I got, all he left me was this broken down mule that died within six months and, and a few tools of his trade so I could follow in his footsteps and maybe a couple of family heirlooms. Meanwhile, Eliezer over there is lazy as a bum, but his dad passed him down acres and acres of land. And so he's wealthy and I'm not. And there's nothing I can do about it. And that's why it's, it's so meaningful that Jesus and his brother James and Peter and Paul, all four of them, constantly use the term inheritance to describe our salvation. It is an inheritance from the Lord. Why is that significant? Because an inheritance is something you don't deserve, you can't possibly earn, but it's given to you freely. And that's our salvation. We will have wealth in the next life. And never, ever again will we have to say the words, you know, it'd be nice, but I just can't afford it. That won't happen. We'll have wealth, we'll have power. When, when Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you guys are gonna judge the 12 tribes of Israel with me, I'm sure they thought that was gonna happen in this life. They thought, okay, he's saying he's about to become king in Israel and will be his co-regents. But what he was saying was actually much bigger and, and more beautiful than that. He's talking about in the new earth. And it's not just those 12 men because uh, as 1 Corinthians 6, two through three, if you've never seen this verse, this is gonna blow your mind. 1 Corinthians 6, two through three says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, I'm not trying to pick on our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, but the problem is when we see the word saints, we think of it in Catholic terms, which is somebody who lived a long, long time ago and we build a plaster statue of them and we pray, you know, that's not what the Bible means when it uses the term saint. The Bible looks at the term saint and and it's looking at you. Anybody who's a believer in Jesus, nine years old, 99 years old, rich, poor, doesn't matter. If you are a child of God, you are one of God's people, you are a saint. The saints, we will judge the world. In fact, he says, don't you know that we are to judge angels? Now, what does that mean? I have no idea. I wish I did. But if God wanted to give us details, he would have. All that he tells us, I know it doesn't mean we get to choose who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that's above our pay grade? And everybody who's ever been mean to you is really glad you don't get to decide who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. But, but for in some way, we will have some kind of judgmental authority. And that means we will have power. The, the person in this room, whoever they are, who has the least authority, who, who's bossed around by everybody in, in the next life, you'll have power. And no one will ever kick you around again. And then there will be comfort too. Comfort is ours in the next life. I love that image, that image of a wolf and a lamb grazing together, the lion eating straw like an ox, no, no longer a predator. I love, uh, there's another image in the writings of Isaiah that I didn't read that says the, the little child will put his hand into the cobra's nest. And nobody will be worried about it because it'll just be like a, a, a little girl picking up a kitten. Uh, there's, there's nothing that will harm you anymore. There's no pain. There's no sorrow. There's no poverty. 
There's no war. There's no disease. There's no death. I guarantee you, nobody, nobody who's there is going to say, man, I wish that I, I, I missed things the way they were. You know, remember back when every time you thought you had something going well, one of, your, one of your loved ones would pass away, when the people who meant the most to you were only temporary? I sure missed that. No, none of us will say that. And God himself will wipe the tears from our eyes. I take that to mean that at least in the beginning, there will be some sadness and some sorrow because we'll think back on the things we did wrong and and the opportunities we missed and the times we were too selfish and we should have invested in someone else, but instead we were thinking only of ourselves and God will come along and he'll say, it's okay. And he'll wipe the tears from our eyes and he himself will personally comfort us. There will be comfort for us, for you, for me. And then finally, there will be affirmation in that place. You know, the the false teachers of our day have tried their best to ruin this teaching. They've taken the passage about the hundredfold blessing and they've said things like, oh, just donate to my ministry. Jesus says $10 to me will be $1,000 back to you and and $100 will be $10,000 and and you just just trust in the Lord. Well, that's, that's baloney. That's the Greek term for it. It's baloney. Come on, y'all. It's funny, isn't it, that none of them say, oh yeah, and, and if you give up one of your children, you'll get 100 kids back. That would be logical based on the way they're interpreting that verse. What Jesus is saying is, yeah, I understand. It's hard to follow me. Being saved is, is easy. Salvation is free. But discipleship is hard. And there are sacrifices you make along the way. But I promise you, you'll never regret one of those sacrifices. Yeah, I I get it. Some of you had to walk away from family members who now reject you because they look upon you as as someone who's brought shame to their family because you're following me, this disgrace, this this illegitimate Messiah figure. But I promise you, you, you get a family back. You get a family that's larger than the one you left. You know, that's that's the whole purpose. I mean, at least one of the purposes of the church, that people who've lost family or, or maybe who grew up in a family that wasn't any good, maybe you didn't have a dad that loved you. Maybe you didn't have a mom who was there for you. Maybe you didn't have siblings who you could count on, but you come to the church and you've got all these siblings and, and all these mother and father figures and people who pour into you. And some of you might say, yeah, but Jeff, I, the church has hurt me. And I understand that happens because churches are places where sinners go. And so sinners mess up and preachers are sinners too. So I'm gonna let you down sometimes and probably already have. And that's gonna happen. But the good news is that while there's a a sort of a preliminary fulfillment of that hundredfold promise right here in the church, there's a ultimate fulfillment when we get to heaven. See, Revelation says that someday we'll, we'll stand, we'll be part of a congregation where every nation and race and tribe and tongue and we'll sing praise to the Lord together. And that's something that's so rare in this life. I mean, as good as we have it here at First Baptist Conroe, I look at this crowd and I, it makes me sad that most of us look pretty much the same. We should have all kinds of colors in these pews. We should have all kinds of voices and faces and accents. And we're not there yet. And I hope we get there someday. But even if we don't, we'll be there someday in the new earth. That's what's coming for us. A family of every kind of person who's ever lived a family, a forever family that you can count on and friends that are true that will never let you down. 
And you might say, all that's great, Jeff, but what, what it sounds like to me is I've just got to persevere for now and the good life comes after I die or when Jesus comes back, whichever comes first, but it doesn't do anything for me now. And I'm, I'm telling you, that's wrong. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Somehow living for the next life makes this life more meaningful. But in order to experience that, there's a couple of changes you and I have to make in the way we think. And one is, one is we have to understand that giving is better than getting. And that is a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around. That's a hard thing for us to implement. Everything within us, everything within us says, no, I need more ice cream. I need more ice cream because it tastes so dang good. And God is like, yeah, but what you really need is to give some stuff away. Mary Clark, uh, back in 1969, Beverly Hills socialite, twice divorced. She has this dream one night and, and she's nominally Catholic, didn't really take her religion seriously, but has this dream. And in this dream, she has this vision in which uh, she is on death row. And the death chamber is waiting. She's, her execution is next. And Jesus Christ appears and says, I will take your place. And she wakes up. And she interprets that vision as saying, I want you to give your life to Christ and to serve people in prison, to be my hands and feet in prison. And she goes to her church and she says, I think God's calling me to be a nun and to work with prisoners. And they're like, well, but you're divorced, so you can't take on holy orders. And she says, okay, well, then I'll start my own holy order. And she drives across the border to Tijuana, where she knows one of the world's most notorious prisons sits. And she goes up to the officials of that prison and says, okay, God has called me to work with your prisoners. And at first they laugh because, okay, what's this little rich woman going to do? But they say, okay, whatever, we'll give you a cell. You can, inter you can inhabit it anytime you want. So she goes from the Beverly Hills mansion to a cell in a prison in Tijuana and over the decades changes the whole environment of that prison. I mean, literally there are times in the history of this woman's life in which there are riots going on where the, the guards and the cops are there with their guns and their billy clubs going, what are we gonna do? Should we storm? Should we, what do we do? And Mother Antonia shows up and says, hey, listen, let me go talk to them. And against all their instincts, they let this little four foot tall, uh, you know, old white woman in a habit go through the gates of the prison into those bars where these guys are waiting with their shivs and their clubs and their other hand, handmade weapons. And she ends up talking them all down. And every man in that place, from the toughest guard to the most vicious prisoner, every man in that place knows if they got a problem, she's the one they go to. And eventually other women come forward and say, I want to follow in her footsteps. She literally started her own order. And we look at that and we say, yeah, what, an, what, a, what a significant life. How admirable is that? But none of us want to be that person. I mean, let's be honest. We want to be the guy who, you know, stands up on a pitcher's mound and wins the Cy Young. Or we want to be the, the, the woman who stands on the stage and sings and everybody says, we want to give you our money. Or we want to be the CEO who leads the new company and and everybody puts, puts me on the cover of the Fortune 500. That's what we emulate. But maybe, maybe we need to listen to what Jesus says. Because I don't know if you've noticed this, but not a day goes by that there's not some story about some wealthy, famous person who's absolutely miserable. Absolutely, absolutely just miserable. Meanwhile, if you've ever met any missionaries, 
Any social workers? Any people who do a lot of volunteering? Any people who are exceptionally generous with their finances? I've never met one of those people who complained or seemed to be unhappy. So maybe there's something to this stuff that Jesus said. Maybe, maybe we should start putting people like Mother Antonia on the cover of magazines instead of supermodels and movie stars. Maybe, maybe instead of daydreaming about all the things we want to buy, we ought to daydream about all the things we want to give away. Maybe instead of thinking about and planning all the stuff we want to do for ourselves, we ought to think about all the people we want to reach. Maybe... Maybe you and I ought to say, you know, I'm not that unselfish by nature, but I can become that person. Because Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice the order there. He didn't say where your heart is, there your treasure follows. He says, when you give your money to something, that's what you start to care about. So don't sit back and say, yeah, I'm just not that compassionate a person. You become generous to people who are in need, you'll become compassionate. Oh, I don't really care about, about people overseas. You start giving to foreign missions and people overseas will start to matter to you. Well, I'm not really all that interested in spiritual things. You start giving to the work of God and the things of God will become utmost in your heart. And since Jesus says giving is better than getting, that's where happiness is found. You're laying up treasure in heaven and you're already feeling rich down here. And then there's a second thing. We need to change our minds and understand that God's idea of the good life is all that really matters. See, we keep going back to God and saying, you don't understand, I, I, I'm hungry for more ice cream. You keep giving me meat and bread and vegetables. I want ice cream. And God's like, you don't understand that I know what you need. Isn't it time we admitted he knows what's best? This rich man comes to him and says, I just want to know, what more can I have? I've already got wealth and power and comfort and affirmation. I've got everything the Bible says or everything the world says I need to be happy, but I'm not. And he goes away sad. The disciples had none of those things. And yet, have you ever thought about this? We don't know that guy's name. We don't know anything about him. If you would have been alive back then, you and I, we would have looked at him and said, okay, he's He's worth more in terms of significance than all 12 disciples put together. And yet we've named our cities after them, our sons, our universities, our hospitals, and we don't know his name. Think about that for a moment. Jesus, before he came into this world, he had ultimate wealth, power, comfort, affirmation as a member of the Holy Trinity. He had it all and he gave it all up for you and for me. He gave it all up so that he could die on a cross for us. So maybe, I'm just suggesting here, maybe you can trust someone like that when he says something radical like, give your life to me. Instead of sitting back and just saying, okay, Lord, I'm short of ice cream. Give your life to me. I'll give you all the ice cream you need, but I'll give you so much more. Maybe we can trust him. Maybe we can say, I will sacrifice. I will put others first. I will represent you above all other things. And I'll just trust you to provide my happiness. I'll trust you to give me the true good life.